0: Uh, my name is Matt McClavick, I'm an elder at uh, Christ the Word Church and I'm here from that church that's in Toledo. My uh, wife is back home with uh, several of our children. My daughter Audrey is here with us right here in the front with the, uh, wave your hand higher there, that's Audrey. <laughs> and uh, my wife is Adrian. I uh, have a son who is a little older than Audrey, who's Nathan, and then uh, three more sons and a, a daughter. So I've got a 20-year-old down to a 2-year-old, and um, God has blessed me with, uh, with really a wonderful wife. Um, so I'm here today may be wondering why it is that a man should address a room full of women on the topic of cultivating feminine deference. I can't hardly say that. (laughs) Such a mouthful. Perhaps the reason that I was chosen to explore this issue with you is that I am married to a woman of great feminine deference and I have learned firsthand how well she carries out this very difficult calling. And in contrast, as an elder for now many years, I have also seen firsthand how hard it is for a man to be married to a woman who is lacking in proper feminine deference. And so I will speak to you today forthrightly and unabashedly about this great need of true femininity in our families and our churches. And let's begin by opening in prayer. Father, we ask for your spirit to be upon us. Lord, we ask that you will uh, speak to each one who is here. We ask whether young or old, uh, you will exhort us to holiness and to sanctification and to salvation in you, and Lord, we ask that you will use even this this topic of uh, deference to draw us up to you and to uh, strengthen your church as we uh, change our lives to, meet, to be in accord with your plans. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm glad all of you moved to the middle too. I was like afraid, okay, everybody would leave and then they would just be everybody in the back and spread out. This is great. Uh, feminine deference is one of the most highly valued and godly characteristics that a children, girl, or woman could aspire to attain. A characteristic that when exercised properly affects changes in her husband, her children, her friends, her church, and yes, even the world around her. A characteristic that wields the very power of God and brings great glory. A characteristic that so threatens the modern day world and the modern-day church that if you mention it, suggest it, or dare to live it, you will most certainly find yourself under seething attack, mockery, and belittlement. Deference is a ca- characteristic that is completely countercultural and completely Christian cultural. Let us begin today with a working definition of deference. So this is my definition of it, but we need to be on the same page. It is the ability to respectfully and graciously yield or submit to the judgment, opinion, or will of another. I will say that again. It is the ability to respectfully and graciously yield or submit to the judgment, opinion, or will of another. So then, this Christian power that I speak about The power that is to change everything is based on yielding and submitting. What does yielding and submitting have to do with exercising power? Isn't that the exact opposite? I mean, anyone could easily yield and submit, right? That's easy, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. It is far more difficult than it sounds because the ability to voluntarily, to voluntarily yield and submit, hinges on that which is beyond us, that which is beyond our natural inclinations, desires, and abilities. So how many men, women, or children grow up saying to themselves, when I grow up, I can't wait to live a life of yielding and submitting to others? How many? (laughs) Zero. From the earliest of ages, a child must learn to yield, submit, and fall in line with the order that has been established. If not, he or she will become an absolute terror. At the heart of the ability to defer is the ability to exercise trust or faith in something or someone else. This is why the worldly person becomes unhinged when they think they may have to trust in anyone but themselves. Likewise, many in the church will claim a position of trusting God while actually living a life of distrusting God as they reject trusting in the authorities that God has placed over them. Not yielding or submitting to God's appointed authorities, whether it be parents or husbands or elders or even governments, is to reject and to not trust in God's established order. Many Christians tread into dangerous territory as they actively reject God's created order and ordinations. Instead, the Christian life should be characterized as a life of deference encompassing both male and female alike. However, the tact for how and when a person yields is defined Differently for each of the sexes based on the authority structures that God has put into place. We tend to have a mostly negative view of deference to defer because no one likes others telling them what to do. It's natural. And if you're looking for the perfect scenario for you to naturally and willingly exercise your deference, then you really don't understand the high calling and high honor of deferring of sacrificing your life to God God has us exactly where he wants us each and every one of us if you think that you could be more deferential if only God would change your setting if only you hadn't made some misstep that got you into a tough setting you are completely missing the boat of God's providence and work in your life God has each of us right where he wants us, and our salvation is at stake as he settles for no less than our hearts, our minds, and our wills to be sacrificed to him. Yet you say, I'll sacrifice it all for God, but not for some sinful, foolish man you placed over me. Our learning how to defer to God in the most difficult circumstances will be developed and tested out as we learn how to defer to those he has placed over us. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Your spiritual faith is played out, developed, and tested through the difficulties and challenges of real-life settings that demand our faith and obedience To begin to unpack our understanding of proper feminine deference, we must first take a look at certain elements of God's created order. The great I am that I am, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was. He was the self-existing one. He was complete. He was lacking nothing. He was happy. He was satisfied. He was love. He was everything and the source of everything that would become anything. But in particular, he was the creator. And as he spoke, he spoke creation into existence. Words flowed from his mouth. And creation would follow the pattern that he set, the pattern of who he is, We're made in his image. It's a pattern. The pattern would bring to substance the glories and perfections of his holiness. Creation from its smallest particle to its largest galaxies, from earth to sky, from light to dark, from land to sea, from plants to animals, to fish in the sea and the birds in the air, from man to woman. All creation would be perfect, perfect creation, perfect harmony, perfect order. It would be patterned after I am that I am. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them. Male and female, he created them in his image. And he didn't just create male and female. He created man first out of the ground. And then, for the sake of man, he fashioned woman out of him. Adam was then given... The mantle of authority over her as he named her. This was the order established. Adam would name Eve, and he would be her head, and she would be his wife and his helpmate and mother of his children. Creation that was perfect in every way, in order and harmony, with not a single way to improve upon it. Creation that was perfect. Absolute perfection because God is and always will be absolutely perfect. Ah, wasn't life nice back then before the fall, before rebellion, right? Adam and Eve were tempted. And then they had a thought, an idea that was seemingly not too radical of an idea, at least not by today's standards. Just a little taste of forbidden fruit. Certainly could not lead to anything too bad, could it? The concepts of lying and murder and strife and cheating and stealing and adultery and shame and broken relationships were not known to them. They were not understood by them. They were not even imagined by them before that fatal taste. How could such things come from such a little act? Why would they even consider doing it? But deep down, they had a thought that thrilled them a thought that thrills us. We can be like God. And so the rebellion began rebellion against God, against his perfect command, against his perfect order, against his perfect creation. Within minutes, the collapse of creation would begin and would start with the decision to not follow God. Within seconds, The woman would reorder her relationship to her husband by taking the lead, and after a few more seconds, the man would abdicate his headship and follow his wife. God's perfect order, God's perfect, harmonious creation would make a radical shift and fall. At that moment, God would be absolutely the same, the same holiness, the same perfection, the same essence, the same ruler, the same everything, But man, for his sake, could no longer inhabit the place of perfection. Otherwise, he'd be destroyed by the holiness of his Father. And so now we groan. We groan because we were cast out into this fallen mess of disorder where everyone imagines himself to be a God. We, along with all creation, groan for the day that perfect order will be reestablished. But until that day, we Christians are called to be holy, to set ourselves apart. We are called to come back into the light of Christ, and we are called to reorder our lives to be in line with God's perfect order. We are, after all, once again, a new creation in which the perfect order of the perfect God will be and is reestablished as is new creation. God has graciously and kept us graciously kept us in this fallen world as He reshapes us for heaven. This means that although we are delivered through Christ back to a relationship with Him, God has God has the very power of Himself indwelling in us by His Holy Spirit. But we must live our lives. We must live our lives on this Earth, under the curse of God, the curse, the great lever that God has put into place to pry us away this lever from loving and trusting in the world, and to lead us back to loving and trusting Him, by teaching us by teaching us to live by faith. The curse of God that is over our world is critical to understand. Because we're in it. Especially in regard to understanding the difficulty of exercising deference. God cursed man. But in particular to the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. in childbearing. and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. So at the very point that Eve decided that she could rule over her husband... God has firmly established that her husband will, in fact, rule over her. This is God's curse. No matter what the women of this world are doing today, the curse stands. Your husband will rule over you, no matter what you do to try to escape it. This is God's judgment, and it's his salvation. This is very hard. Husbands will rule, whether he's a good husband or a bad husband, but most certainly he will be a sinful husband. This curse is typified in the relationship of a husband and wife, but it also projects itself far beyond to all headship or authority types of relationship. There are rulers and there are subordinates. It's order. There will always be a conflict and a resistance to any type of established rule, whether it be a teacher ruling over a student or a boss ruling over an employee. For all women, the curse of the rule of a sinful ruler, typified, typified by her relationship to her husband, is what she must live under. This seemingly upside-down, broken relationship becomes the primary basis for her salvation and for her sanctification, Be not dismayed, for God has established this very curse so that you may return to God and be made holy. If you will not be ruled by your husband or by your appointed authorities, which is the reestablishment of God's perfect order, then you will in fact not be ruled by God. Right now as I speak, there are women sitting here in this room who think they are okay with God, even even though they will not fully submit to their husband or other appointed authorities. One day God will remove the curse, but until that day we must learn to live with it through the power of Jesus Christ instead of trying to escape it. That's the lever. God perfectly created woman, he perfectly created her, and he created her to be a helpmate And a mother and a wife. And she is perfectly equipped in every way for this station in life. She is most highly capable and has been given a most glorious calling to fulfill. But today the world mocks you with its lies. Lies put forth by Satan through scoundrels of men who want the free love of women but despise the cost of responsibility that goes with that love. And lies put forth by women who vehemently despise authority, headship, and especially fatherhood, and will do anything to prove they don't need a husband or a father or a head or a provider. They have been taught. They have been taught. They have learned. They have become wise. They need not trust in anybody but themselves. God, in fact, created woman, To be the very glory of a man. She's the crown of his head. She is flesh of his very flesh. She is his beautiful bride and she is the mother of all mankind. How great is that? She must not strive to become a man. She is as Adam named her, and as I would say of my wife, she is all woman. The Lord said it is not good that man should be alone. It is not good. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Here in Genesis 2.18, we find God saying that man needs help. God made him this way. God made man perfectly this way, lacking. He would not make it in life without help. But was it all about man? No, since God made man to need a helper... The helper was to be a most valuable part of the plan after all God had said later that the two would become one flesh one body so anyone who argues in any sense that man is more important than woman has a mental hernia their elevator has not made it to the top floor man is lacking and man is in need of great help Women. You are to excel in this calling of being a helper. I'm going to connect this helper stuff to deference later. This is groundwork. Women, you are to excel in this calling of being a helper. And if God has given you a husband, you are to excel in helping him. For every man who excels truly, and there's exceptions, Look for a woman, though, who's more glorious right behind him. And if he happens to be a godly man, well, then look for a wife who exceeds him in godliness. But is it really only about husbands and wives? No, every daughter, every young lady here, every older woman who has no husband should be living their lives following the same godly pattern, a helper to God's church, a helper to her employer if she works, a helper to young ladies, a helper to children, a helper to struggling mothers, a helper to older women, to older men and women. You name it, she has the position, she has the the makeup to be a helper. It is of highest esteem in God's kingdom, highest esteem. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve. Women, you are the glory and crown of your husband, and you are the glory and crown of a manly church that serves the Lord with all vigor. You complete the man. And if you won't or don't take up your calling, well, quite frankly, you will suffer under the weak and the weakness of an incomplete man. Let me speak to those of you women who think you should be more in a partnership with your husband or with your authorities that God has placed above you. Many of you think that your husband or the church uh, should take on the duty of being your helpmate. Yes, the church is full of women who have bought into the partnership lie that our world preaches. Partnerships uh, really mean to the worldly people. person, to the worldly worldly woman, I'll help you, you help me, let me say this, God did not make man to be your helper. God did not make man to be your helper. This may come as a shock to some of you. Yes, godly men will do all sorts of things that will help, bless, provide, protect man, has many things they are responsible to do and hopefully they're being exhorted to do that right now in other sessions. But God did not make man to be your helper. And how many women here sap their husband's energy, strength, and focus so that they can be the center of his attention? A good man has much to do and accomplish and your help is absolutely essential to him. This is how God made it. Look, however, to home where a husband's wife demands that he be her helpmate, and you will find one pitiful setting. The wife will never be content or happy without her husband's full attention. Oh, and she'll find a way to get it. The oppressive Christian wife will belittle, overtake, manipulate, and deprecate on her husband until he becomes the mouse of a man that she wants to serve him. So if your complaint is that your husband or even pastor is a mouse of a man and you wish he'd lead you better, might it be, might it be that you have helped to make him that way by refusing to serve him and yield to him and submit to him and help him? Do you give to your husband full support, full help, full service, Full backing, always. Or do you measure this stuff out and withhold it, or even work against them? If you do, you are the less for it, and he is really the less for it because he's lacking the helper he needs, which makes him far worse of a man. Amazingly, many women in the church would prefer lesser men and a lesser life so that they will not have to sacrifice too much because this is what it's all about. Many of these same women enjoy searching out the sympathies of others for how terrible it is to have men who don't lead or properly provide, who are not loving them enough. Yes, these men are likely failing in many areas of life and are held responsible by God for their failure, but would they be failing to the degree that they are if their women were exercising complete deference. In a few cases, yes, they'd fail. But in most cases, given some time, the men would start to shine. There's nothing more powerful than to, to in Christ to change a man than having the complete and strong support of a great woman. Yes, every husband needs to be called to lead, but if you are not willing to follow and support even when he's difficult or even when he's wrong, you are in effect killing your husband. You're killing your own flesh. If this is you, stop it. Repent and take up the staff of Helpmate. It's your highest calling and it's your greatest gift. My own wife, Adrian is a real woman of deference and by that I mean she has struggled through a lifetime of giving up her life for the sake of her husband, her family and especially God's church. In stark contrast, Adrian has a sister named Jennifer who lives a very different sort of life. Much fruit according to its kind has been born of these two women. And I asked Adrian to write down some of her experience of uh, learning deference, of giving up the world, while at the same time her close sister pursued it and continues to pursue it. Uh, I asked her to write somewhat of a little autobiography of her and her sister, kind of parallel track, back and forth between what's going on in their life. And I asked her to do this because I think uh, many of us uh, can find uh, at least a struggle, if not the same, uh, same story, at least a struggle of how hard it is to, uh, to live this sacrificial life that uh, you and I as a man are called to live. So this is my wife, Adrienne. And this is a little bit of her story. My older sister, Jennifer, and I are the only children in our family born 13 months apart. We were the best of friends growing up. I'm hard-pressed to think of a single memory from my happy childhood that didn't include my sister. We enjoyed the same things. We pursued the same extracurricular activities and spent most of our time together. My parents strongly emphasized the importance of a good education and the drive for academic excellence consumed both my sister and I from the earliest grades. Jennifer was naturally brilliant, I am not, but not wanting to be left behind, I did everything it took to achieve the same grades that she earned, that's my wife, very competitive. During our high school years, we began attending Young Life. We both were introduced to the gospel, and here's where our our paths began to diverge. Jennifer went to the Young Life meetings and social events, and even some Bible studies, but didn't seem particularly interested in the gospel message contrast, I instantly knew that this message of salvation in Jesus was very different from the dry and dull church service that we attended with our parents every Sunday. I wanted what my young life leaders had. The seeds of faith were planted in me, but it would be many years before they really began to grow. I believed the correct things about Jesus, but my life in many ways was unaffected. Her senior year in high school, Jennifer achieved the Oscar award of academic achievement. I don't know what that is. Uh, She was accepted to Harvard, probably has something to do with that. Uh, she, She was thrilled. My parents were proud and I was very happy for her. After all, from our earliest days, the question was not, will you go to college? But what is the highest ranking college you can go to? She left for Boston and spent the next four years preparing for what would surely be a promising and lucrative career. The next year, I applied to a multitude of colleges and was accepted at Georgetown. Although it wasn't an Ivy League school, I figured it was fit, uh, It fit the bill for a good college. The seeds of faith that God had planted in my life during high school did not wither up and die during my college years. I prayed. I read my Bible. I thought of myself... As a Christian, but looking back, it is disturbing that I was able to live the life I did without the slightest twinge of realization that God would not be pleased with my choices. I attended a church service led by a man and his wife who were co-pastors, and I remember they used general neutral hymn books. For every song that had the word man, it was changed to folk. (laughs) As in... Good Christian folk, rejoice! (laughs) I thought this was quirky, but didn't question it at all. I was an English major and spent the last two years in the honors program. Every single English course in the honors program had a feminist slant to it. My senior thesis was a feminist approach to Shakespeare, in which I demonstrated how the great Baird's writings revealed a deep-seated disdain for women. My knowledge of the Bible was so limited that it never occurred to me that God would have an opinion about all of this. Meanwhile, Jennifer had graduated from Harvard and earned a Fulbright scholarship to study in Europe for a year. She studied, but she also lived a glamorous life that seemed to be something from a Hollywood movie. She wrote me letters describing sipping champagne on a yacht in the French Riviera with an Italian boyfriend She visited castles in Germany and vineyards in Italy and spas in France. She returned from her year in Europe and began working in Boston, earning six figures. Having no one but herself to spend this money on, she took lavish vacations, purchased designer clothing, and thought nothing of dropping hundreds of dollars at a department store makeup counter. She went to graduate school, of course at MIT, earning an MBA, and she then quickly found a lucrative job in New York City. What was I doing during these years? I decided that I was going to be a wildly successful newspaper journalist. So dur- during my senior year, applied to graduate schools. I graduated in the top 1% or above, <laughs> something like that. I think I put that in. She wouldn't say that, but the top of her class. I was accepted into the top journalism program in America but then made a decision that would change the course of my life. I felt led by the Lord to defer my admission to graduate school for one year in order to do a year of volunteer work. I figured this was the perfect time to do a year of service as I was not yet immersed in a career. The graduate school agreed to hold my spot for the following fall for a fee, of course, and I applied to programs all over America that ministered to teenage delinquent children I was a soon-to-be college graduate offering to work for free for a whole year, and every single program I applied to rejected me. (laughs) Only one located in Toledo, Ohio, finally agreed that they would take me, even though they really didn't want me. And that's because I was praying, but that's another story, because I was in Toledo praying, so God had to ship her there. All right. This Christian-based program in Toledo had, a, had group homes for teenage delinquent boys, and I stepped off the plane in Toledo certain that God would use me for great things during my year here. However, the leader of the ministry quickly decided that there was really no way I could work with teenage boys since I was a girl and only a few years older than them. And they were delinquents, could you imagine? <laughs> Instead of fulfilling my grandiose vision of service to troubled kids, I ended living for that year with the leader of the ministry, his wife, and his family, which included eight small children. I cooked for them. I did their laundry. I cleaned their house. I drove their children to school. I changed their diapers. I basically had no interaction with the teenagers they had come to serve although I did get to do their laundry. During my entire growing up years, I had known one woman personally who got pregnant and had a baby. This is the culture. I know here it doesn't seem that way. This is what the world's like. If If you go out into the neighborhoods or people Audrey has graduated with, they don't even know anything about kids. You bring kids along, and uh, they're, fa- they're uh, fascinated with them often. They just don't know anything about them. She had known one woman who had a baby growing up. I was completely unfamiliar with young, young children to say that this turn of events was a shock is an understatement. The mother of this family quickly assessed the situation. A 21-year-old feminist didn't, who didn't like kids was going to be living with her family for a year. She started meeting with me every morning for Bible study before her children woke up. Uh, We woke up at 4.50 each day to do this. She began by teaching me about every single woman in the Bible and how she fulfilled the calling that God had for her. I kept a journal at that time, and after the first week of this study, wrote in the journal, quote, women are supposed to submit to men. Hmm. It's an interesting idea, but I don't buy it. Praise the Lord, however, that he quickly and radically worked through Bible study to change my mind completely about, well, pretty much everything. To state it as briefly as possible, by the end of that one year, I met my husband, declined Declined my admission, Excuse me, but my, I am moved because my wife has given her life. <clears throat> I had met my husband, declined my admission to graduate school, <clears throat> and decided that a high-powered career is not what I actually wanted. My parents and sister were horrified. I got married and mainly to appease my family enrolled at the local university to earn a teaching certificate to teach high school English. So my student, during my student teaching, I became pregnant with our first child. They were even more horrified. What a waste of an education. What about my career? How could I? Matt and I had our first two children, became deeply involved in ministry and lived a happy life. Well, happy, but you know, full of struggles, but happy life. <laughs> During those years, however, whenever the Georgetown Alumni magazine arrived, which list, listed the details <clears throat> the details of my classmates' successful careers, I fell into a funk for days. My sister would visit once a year, and I felt inferior and inadequate. I remember she visited one scorching summer. She had recently returned from some lavish European vacation on the Mediterranean Sea. We couldn't afford air conditioning in our little house, and it was 90 degrees and humid. The only respite from the heat I could offer her was to sit in our little backyard with my two little toddlers in a little plastic waiting pool (laughs) I realized how pathetic my life must seem to her in her eyes and it stung I knew deeply that I was doing what God wanted me to do and there was satisfaction in that but I still wondered if I was missing something when I compared myself to my sister we were married for 10 years before I finally and wonderfully was released from this burden At that time, God convicted Matt and I that we were holding on to the world's idea of what our life should be. God's order, God's order was not dictating our decisions. The world's order was dictating our decisions. I discovered that my own idea of happiness was deeply rooted in unbiblical ideas. This conviction infiltrated many areas of our life, from our finances to our family size to our choice of churches. I see so clearly now what eluded me for so many years that leading a life of self-sacrifice is the only fulfilling way to lead one's life and the only way to please the Lord. My family is still somewhat horrified at the life we live. Why would we want to raise children until we are in our 70s? Why would we want to exhaust our finances and our schedules with church stuff? But their questioning of our life no longer bothers me because Christ has given me such joy and peace in the decisions that we've made. And I do see acknowledgement on their part that our life is filled with blessing even though they don't understand it. As Christ has given me contentment in the station he has for me, a place of self-sacrifice. I view my sister differently than I used to First, I love her and pray for her salvation because that is the real difference between us. That is why I'm joyfully able to live a life of self-sacrifice while she is living a life of self-indulgence. Where has this life of self-indulgence led her? Well, you can guess it. Broken relationships with many boyfriends. Two divorces. Alcoholism. deliberate childlessness, plastic surgery, loneliness, antidepressants, a high paying job but empty career, fear of aging, and independence. She's attained everything that the world says is valuable and she's miserable. For 20 years she has called me year in and year out, crying because of the destruction she has brought on her life. And yet she still views our life as provincial, narrow, and antiquated. She feels sorry for me and I pity her. I look at my two daughters. One is still very young and I pray for her salvation and that she'll understand these things. The other is entering womanhood with a faith that I didn't even know existed when I was her age. To look at my daughter and see her embrace God's calling for her brings me joy that I don't really know how to describe. The Lord brought me to this point through years of living a Christian life while continuing to learn to give up the world that was so deeply planted in me. These reflections of Adrian give us a pretty good picture of some of the dynamics at work. Both in the world and in the sanctification process that a godly woman must go through as she becomes a new creation. And the ability for her to defer to God's order, to look away from her own plans, will be key in her ability to follow God, her ability to defer to God. Feminine deference, first and foremost, relies on the very power of God to achieve. This equates to trusting in his plans, his created order, and his ordinations. Faking deference without trusting in God will leave you disappointed, empty, and frustrated. Satisfaction from God will only come about when you embrace his intended plan. As my wife, Adrian said, leading a life of self-sacrifice is the only way. Practically, How good are you at respectfully and graciously yielding or submitting to the judgment, opinion, or will of your appointed heads? Let us consider each of these attributes for just a few minutes and you do the evaluating. First with respect, respect and deference. How well do you show to your authorities respect when you defer to them do you still honor them and speak kindly of them to others even in regards to the matter that you deferred in or perhaps do you begrudgingly give in while telling others of your sacrificial yielding while in the next breath you speak of why you would not do it that way if it were up to you If you have a habit of doing this and you are only feigning deference, if you can only muster up a fake deference, then you should go ahead and expect the worst in the area of your faux deferral. Fake deference. The power of God comes in force when you actually trust him and you don't fake it. You trust in his order, and the power of God kicks in. Your complete backing of an authority in which you defer is necessary and impacting. Anything less than this full backing, and you might as well have just not deferred in the first place. I don't know how else to say it, but when you fully back your God-given authorities, God will ultimately bring about great things and I don't know how but he will as far as being gracious okay here's the deal with grace when you offer grace to your authority when you defer to them against your own desire you are taking a position of sacrifice know this it'll help you defer you're taking a position of sacrifice You're giving them something they have not earned and don't deserve. At least don't deserve by anything they've done. They may deserve it by their position. This is the same as Christ did for us. At the heart of deferring is the fact that you don't want to do what the other person wants you to do, right? You are, after all, deferring to their judgment, opinion, or will which is obviously not yours. Otherwise, you would not have to defer. Are you typically full of grace when you have to defer? By this, I mean do you fully back them and give to them all of your support, all of your help, all of your encouragement, and all of your aid, even if they falter? Do you give of yourself willingly and joyfully? Or do you make those who you have deferred to pay for your grace? I'll give you a little and you give me a little and maybe we can work something out. Or if you give me some of your mandrakes then I'll reward you later tonight. Or I'll back you when you convince me that you are right and I am wrong and not until then. No, instead you must embrace your position as a follower of your authority without expectation of payback or dividend. God will give you your dividends a hundredfold by following his structure and his order. Don't demand payback from those to whom you defer. You are giving them a free gift, the gift of God's grace that is found in your deferral. Powerful, powerful. Yielding and submitting. Yielding and submitting is really hard to do. You must understand yourself as being under authorities. And you must anticipate your authorities and be ready to follow. Okay? This helps with yielding and submitting. Know your position. Try to anticipate them. And be ready to follow. The nub of the problem is this. At times you may agree with an authority's decision and at times you may not. Yes, you feel really good when someone asks you to do something, you're in full agreement. But when you are in full disagreement, what do you do? First, you must be ready to yield and submit to your authority. Be ready to do it. This means get ready to follow even when they may be wrong. And if they're wrong in a big way, it's still your job to follow and to help them. God made this order. It's your job. This means you may have to submit at times with no question. A good follower though will always be looking out for the best interest of their head. So when you see a real problem or danger you should approach the authority with all respect and reverence and ask to be heard. It's not just shut up, do nothing, but if there's a real problem, humbly approach your authority and see if he'll, he'll hear you. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Approach them with all respect and reverence and ask to be heard. If the authority will hear you, then speak and let them know your concerns or thoughts and then turn it back over to them for their decision and be ready to yield and submit my wife does this all the time when I say turn it back over to them ask to be heard and that humility goes a long way and then if they'll hear you great turn it back over to them though and say but I'll follow your decision Well, I have a lot more than two minutes left here. I was told I had an hour, but uh, you know how schedules go. Well, let me finish just this thought. Since like most men when I speak, I really believe that I'm right all the time. Adrian, my wife, help my helpmate, will ask me questions, she'll prompt thoughts in me, and she will pray that I change my mind. And I often do change my mind because of her help. She is my helpmate helping me to make good decisions, and she will also help me after I've made bad decisions. This same approach is effective for all types of authority relationships. Consider Queen Esther and her example of practicing deference. By living, by her living a life of deference, she stored up favor in the sight of God and man. Queen Esther deferred to Mordecai, her adopted father, adoptive father, and to the king, and even at risk of her own life, she approached them and was granted favor by God. Now the last thing I have is on uh, yielding to judgment, properly yielding to judgment, and I will just uh, I'll end in a minute or two. <laughs> judgment and opinion. Do you properly yield? To judgment opinions and wills um, don't argue and debate everything as if you're the authority when you're not some people do that obviously no man on this earth has perfect judgment has all the correct options or has a perfect will even so it is not your job to judge those exercising rule over you help them defer to them try to understand their judgments but don't become their judge Do you speak as a judge to others over those who exercise judgment over you? If you do, you are a usurper of authority. Do you listen and try to understand their opinions? Or do you not listen and only hear your your own opinion? And will you not rest in your clanging until they yield to your opinion and their opinion becomes your opinion? If you do this, then you're working to manipulate your head. And finally, will you happily and joyfully follow the will of others, or do you really only seek to live according to your own selfish will? Christ did the will of his Father completely and perfectly laying aside his own will while taking up the Father's will as his own. Do you take up the will of those God has placed Above you? Do you take up their will? This is the high calling of God that we become nothing and that He become everything. So do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Therefore, God will highly exalt you when you defer. Defer with grace. Defer with grace. And one last exhortation, relax. Relax in God's will for your life. God's will for your life is not that complex. Follow his commands in his perfect order of the things that he's made and laid out and relax and become happy. How many of us live in continual strife because we must achieve everything our own way. Oh, how we try to find another way around him and his perfect plans for us so that we can be like God's. Give it up and rest in him. You will be amazed how he will give you peace and satisfaction in him when you stop kicking against his goads. He has already done everything for you Will he not love you forever? Let's pray.